HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So did you have your three square meals a day yesterday? We'll talk more about that on A Taste of the Past. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And, you know, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Thanksgiving is, I think, everyone's fantasy of the ultimate meal with family, friends, all sitting around a, a bountiful table. And meals have pretty much come to represent just that, sitting around with family or friends around a table laden with food designated times of the day. But you know, it wasn't always like that, and I've come to find out quite a bit about it. Today, my guest is Abigail Carroll, and that's who I found out all about it from. She has written a new book called Three Squares, The Invention of the American Meal. Abigail is a food scholar and a historian, and she trace, in this book, she traces the history of the American meal, from trencher mess of the colonials to TV dinners of our, well, today and yesterday. Abigail, welcome. Thank you, Linda. Um, Abigail, I did not, uh, I have more to mention about Abigail, actually. She has taught in the gastronomy program at Boston University, and she's published articles in a variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She holds a Ph.D. in American Studies from Boston University and makes her home in Vermont. That's where she's joining us today by phone. And Abigail... This book has just been fascinating to me. I mean, it's, it's taken me back, and, and the images I, I see of, you know, of travelers, of, of colonists, of... You didn't really start out to write a book about this, though, did you? No, I didn't. I actually wanted originally to write a book about the history of snacking in the United States. Um, I was doing research for the Indiana State Museum on uh, the relationship between snacking and obesity, and I wanted to find out whether we always snack. You know, obesity is 
um, you know, a, a newer phenomenon. So I wanted to know whether snacking was also a newer phenomenon. Uh, but I couldn't find any secondary sources that really looked in depth at this. So I thought, well, the book doesn't exist and I will write it. And there was plenty in the historical record to draw from. Uh, but as I began to delve into the research, I realized that the birth of the modern snack is really wrapped up in the birth of the modern meal, and you can't tell one story without telling the other. They're really two sides of the same coin. So I ended up telling both. Well, and I'm happy you did because it's, <laughs> it, as I say, it's, it has just opened my eyes to a lot of things, but uh, you do also write in, in very vivid imagery style, which I like, um, and it is a pleasure to read. But let's start at the beginning. Take well, this is the American meal after, and we have to remember that we're not going back to the caveman. This is, but it's almost <laughs> so we do the American meal. Bring us up to speed a little bit about where you start in your timeline, like the early colonists' meal pattern. Well, I begin with the European uh, explorers and settlers and their encounter with Native Americans. And Native Americans were not known for eating fixed meals. They, they didn't necessarily regulate their eating on a schedule in the way that the Europeans did. And the Europeans were rather appalled and took this as evidence that the Native Americans were, in fact, uncivilized. Um, and uh, yet, I, I would argue that uh, the way in which uh, the early settlers and colonists uh, were eating was not all that more civilized um, in that, uh, well, um, they would, you know, eat a sort of a parade of um, rather unbalanced uh, uh, meals during the day, and some of their meals were very spontaneous. And so they had their main meal in the middle of the day rather than the evening, and it was the the one hot meal of the day. They may have um, heated uh, breakfast or dinner, but often, I mean, sorry, breakfast or supper, but often those were cold meals. They were leftovers, um, cornmeal mush, this kind of thing. Um, and these meals were not particularly social events. Well, you said they didn't, by and large, they might not have even had a table or chairs. That's right. A, a lot of households, you know, simply put a board across two trestles. Uh, they might have had a bench, which they called a form, and they often only put it on one side of the table rather than the sort of iconic dinner table we think of as the family seated around a right. table. Um, they, you know, often ate with their hands or they might just have a knife. They would sop up their, you know, food with their bread as kind of a spoon substitute. And they didn't have to catch up with each other um, like we tend to think of the d dinner meal as facilitating because um, they were often working together all day anyways, you know, on, on, on uh, farmsteads and whatnot. Um, and so... Really, eating was dinner was much more uh, sort of the business of eating. It was about refueling, and not a lot was invested in it socially. Mm. So, I mean, it was really basically a means to get their sustenance and little else, and and they dispensed with it quickly. I would imagine for the majority of people, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, um, and you give uh, very nice references of of actual writings, um, and particularly Alexander Hamilton. I, I was, mm -hmm. you know interested to see that he actually noted the dinner patterns and, and the eating patterns. And that was, that was, to me, at least, you know, it, it really illustrated what was going on at that time. Well, what, you know, we go over the next couple hundred years, what, sure, sure. what happened um, that 
transformed our meal pattern as we know it? Well, um, in the by the early to mid 1700s, uh, the colonists were prospering more. They were looking to England for their fashion cues, and they were trying to, I think, move away from the peasant eating patterns. Uh, you know that they. Uh, had embraced and depended on. And, of course, the ideal British, you know, upper-class meal was a, was a roast, and it was beef. And so, you know, the roast becomes iconic, um, uh, surrounded by uh, vegetables, which are now served on their own rather than uh, mixed into a stew. Um, and uh, puddings and pies become uh, quite popular. Often a meal started with a pudding, Mm-hmm. and then proceeded to a roast, although there was really no emphasis on uh, courses that came later. Um, so that's sort of the, the typical meal for much of uh, the country, um, for the, or at least the typical ideal meal. And that, would, um, have, and that really, would have primarily been in the middle of the day, too, right? That would have been the, yes, it would yeah. have remained in the middle of the day, and, and I think it was very much an expression of... Um, of English identity, that they were identifying with England, and of prosperity, that they were um, able to, you know, have meat at the center of the meal rather than just a flavor for the stew. Or a mm-hmm. um, but then during the Industrial Revolution, um, that model was replaced by uh, a model of, of courses in the French style. Um, so you have also, um, and, and perhaps most importantly, during the uh, Industrial Revolution, dinner shifts from the middle of the day to the evening. As people leave um, the farm and, and sort of embrace uh, city life and work in factories, and more people are also working at desks, and it's not feasible for people to go home for a hot meal in the middle of the day. And so dinner shifts to the evening. It accommodates work patterns. Um, and it becomes the time now when family is together They've been separated throughout the day. They've all gone in different directions. And their, their evening is special because it's the only time during the weekday that they're, that they're together. And so dinner, um, by extension, becomes special. Right. Well, and you mentioned that this, of course, came about with the Industrial Revolution. And prior mm-hmm. to that, when we go back to the, you know, the, the uh, colonists say, I mean, getting a meal on the table, cooking something, having hot food, that was no easy task. I mean, that took, you know, that took a lot of, a large part of their day. Absolutely. I mean, the open hearth cooking. And so with the Industrial Revolution, obviously there were more modern means of, of actually preparing food too, which made it possible, right, to, to cook mm-hmm. anything. Interesting. Yeah, and, uh, well, I think um, the, other, the other part of um, the puzzle is, is that servants come into play in a new way. As, as the middle class emerges, uh, it becomes um, typical of the middle class to have a servant or two. And, of course, cooking is a big part of the servant's um, expected duties. And that's what makes it possible to have suddenly uh, not only, you know, dinner uh, in, in the evening, but uh, more importantly, I think, uh, the French... Uh, sequence of courses, you know, you're, you're, we think of starting with a salad. They would have started with a soup more typically, an entree, maybe a salad after the entree and dessert. And, the, and that separation of sweetness and savory really comes from the French during this time with a separate dessert course. And, and so you have not only now the, the specialization of foods like um, in terms of separate um, Portions for you know, separate foodstuffs. Now you have a, a, a separation in terms of the, the time as well. You have 
um, a scattering of foods over a particular uh, period of time for the meal. Mm. Uh, well, you um, you talked about the the cooking and servants come into play, but then and then we kind of you know fast forward a little bit and. We're still sticking to basically three. We're, they have established three meals a day. Is that mm-hmm. correct during that time? Yeah, seventeen, eighteen hundreds, right? Um, what you know? Did anything change about housekeeping in terms of cooking that that made it more respectable? Um, uh, I'm thinking more about the snacking. Actually, yeah, snacking was n- not sitting down to a meal and just snacking. Um, that was not particularly looked upon as as a a proper meal, and and it was what you had mentioned that it was looked upon as being lower class. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that change? So snacking uh, really comes into focus with the emergence of the modern evening meal, and it becomes taboo specifically because because the meal becomes sacred. As the meal becomes a special time, sort of eating between meals uh, becomes a threat to the meal. And because the evening meal was so much more than about the food that was served, it was about family, it was about middle-class propriety, it's where children were taught their manners, which was very important during this era. Um, snacking undermines all of that. And so, um, you know, it's looked down upon. It's seen as morally weak. Um, it's also seen as um, unhealthy. And, uh, but it's, it, it takes on even more stigmas um, as you start to have peddlers selling street foods. Snacks such as peanuts and popcorn are now associated with um, uh, spaces of, of working-class entertainment, sports, vaudeville theaters, um, fairs, this kind of thing. And so for, for, for quite some time, snacking is really suspect. But that changes uh, with commercialization, uh, beginning in the very late 1800s. And, um, and basically, packaging comes into play, and snack food is now available at grocery stores. It's not seen as hygienically questionable because you're not buying sort of the pretzel that's been exposed to the dust of the street, <laughs> including the manure dust and whatnot from the days of horses and carriage. And... Um, and and then, of course, you know, sort of jumping to the mid-20th century with um, the invention of the television, snacking becomes domesticated. It's something you do at home in front of your television. And uh, it also becomes incorporated into the meal itself. Oh, yeah. uh, snack food manufacturers are, are coming up with recipes so that you can, you know, use their pretzels in your pie crust. Um, so. yeah. Well, you talked about... Um, um, how our dinner patterns could have taken a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, what and this was was perhaps cooperative housekeeping. What? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that a little bit. What do you mean about that? Well, in the late eighteen hundreds, when there was um, what they referred to as the servant problem, servants were becoming less affordable, less reliable, and less available. Um, something you know had to be done, and so the home economics movement. Um, emerges as a way to sort of professionalize the career of servants and to train them and make them more reliable. But the problem was that there weren't very many candidates for the cooking classes and housekeeping classes that they were offering. And so... um, and so the home economics movement ends up basically training the homemaker in in going back into the kitchen and 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 sort of re- relearning or um, 
cooking and cleaning um, and doing the things that their servants had done. But for some women, this was just really unstomachable. And so they pioneered, um, beginning in the 1860s, but this was most uh, common in the, uh, between about 1900 and World War One a movement called the Cooperative Housekeeping Movement, which was written up in women's uh, magazines, and people would have known about it. And that was uh, basically an alternative to women cooking in kitchens. It was uh, basically you could pay your dues to a cooperative housekeeping club, and uh, those dues would then in turn uh, be used to um, pay for um, a cook, the rental of a space. People would bring their you know, a tablecloth, their china, um, and they would um, basically have a community meal, um, often, you know, as family units, not sort of shaker style. Um, but, uh, you know, this was an alternative. Basically, the, this made the idea of the kitchenless house a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, architects were, you know, designing these things. Um, novelists were writing about them. And uh, there were even, um, you know, contests in, in women's magazines for proposals for, um, you know, uh, cooperative housekeeping. Another model of cooperative housekeeping was the, was the dinner delivery system, where you would actually eat dinner in your own house, but, you know, you, it would be delivered. And, uh, but I think that, um, I think this is very instructive when we think about this, because it, it does show a kind of fork in the road at one point where dinner could have gone in a very different direction than it did go in. But the cooperative housekeeping movement ultimately failed. That's that's uh, very interesting um, that I I actually had not read a lot about the cooperative housekeeping. The home economics movement Mm -hmm. had a lot of different um, avenues, too. Of course, in the early 19th century with Juliet Corson, I mean, that was pretty much to help teach people about nutrition and how to cook. Mm, but, yeah. Um, yeah, but this cooperative housekeeping is very interesting. I, that, that, that could be something that comes around again. Who knows? <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Sort of like, like um, you know, uh, people living on, um, in cooperative farms and, and mm-hmm. eating together. It's not unlike that in large part, mm-hmm. I imagine. It does go against the grain of individualism, I think, though. That is family unit, yeah. Yes, and and it's around you know this time I think also when dinner has not only become special but it's becoming an a symbol of what it means to be American, and so uh, you know to have a cooperative housekeeping setting um, can be. It goes against the grain of a lot of what uh, has been associated with uh, American culture. Right. Well, and so much of the American meal, um, as you've described, too, revolves around, as you say, eating with the family unit. Yes. And so then there are all those workers who, you know, don't have a family, are you know, and uh, for whatever reason, traveling. Okay. I, you know, boarding houses did come around. Um, and meals were taken, so there were not restaurants at the time, but meals were taken at boarding houses. Mm-hmm. So that was a communal meal all the same. So that became their family. I mean, family, however you want to interpret it, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll kind of talk about the modern meal and what's happening to that. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. 
I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. It's when the nights get warm And there's something sweet that I crave You are listening to California Peach by the California Honey Drops here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org I'm talking about a sweet, 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 sweet Carolina Peach I want my My Carolina Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past here at Heritage Radio Network, and I'm speaking with Abigail Carroll, the author of a new book called Three Squares, The Invention of the American Meal. And Abigail, um, you mentioned how when the meal became a, an established practice, that it was it almost became sacred. I mean, that, that eating with the family was very, very important. And it's funny because suddenly in our new culture, food has taken on a religion again. It's like, you know, everyone is so obsessed with, you know, posting things on Twitter and on Facebook and yeah. every meal they eat and every, <laughs> everything that every recipe that they, that they prepare. Um, but you know, our, I don't know whether it's, it's, um, we feel guilty when we don't sit down and have a meal together. I think we do in a certain way, but our eating habits have never really been stable. Um, you know, recently and mm-hmm. eating patterns do change but i think we're still trying to adhere to to um the family meal Absolutely. what do you think is the future of our family meal well that's a great question and it's a hard question to answer um part of it has to do with what we decide we want you know for it to be as individuals and a society and i'm not sure that we've you know have a, a lot of consensus about that but what i do see um in terms of pattern is that when I talk to people about my book and I just, when I was writing it and I would say, oh, I'm writing a book about the history of the American meal, that's all I needed to say. People would start confessing that their families didn't eat together uh. or they tried but they weren't able to keep it up or um, this and that. And I, I was really taken back at first by how quickly and readily people sort of confess this about their personal, you know, lives. Um, but I think it's a kind of uh, expressive of a desire to have that conversation. You know, we're talking about food in our society perhaps more than ever. You know, we have the conversation going about organic food versus conventional, and we have the conversation going about local food and, you know, gourmet and, and all of these food trends. But I don't see people talking about how we eat. It's more about what we eat right. or the, the, the social justice context of food and whatnot. Um, but not so much about the family meal and the value of that and also what the implications are for society, you know, of, of having regular meals. Um, I think people's lament of its, of its decline uh, speaks not only to uh, the fact that, you know, that, that it's, been valuable in the past, but but that it, it does have value, and, and they're right, I think, in 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 thinking that the meal has value, uh, because you know researchers have 
found a lot of interesting things about family dinner. You know, they found that when we eat together, as opposed to eating alone, we always eat better, nutritionally speaking. We always take in more vegetables and uh, less saturated fat, less sugary drinks, um, and uh, children who, who grow up eating regularly with their families tend to maintain these um, nutritional patterns into their young adult years. Um, and they also are less likely to develop um, uh, eating disorders, to abuse alcohol. Um, children's word banks uh, grow um, faster when they're eating meals regularly with their family than the children who are not eating meals regularly with their family. So there is a lot of value. There's, there's a reason, I think, that people regret the decline of the family meal. So all of that, all those reprimands I gave to my kids, it all paid off in the end, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you talked about uh, the... Um, the packaging uh, and well san- sanitization, if you will, of, of snack foods, and they, they mm-hmm. became more acceptable. But then that also uh, played into breakfast cereals. Breakfast, not cereals. Not gave that away. Breakfast foods and mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. breakfast actually evolved um, with particular foods. You know, rather than just eating the the leftovers from the roast the night before, mm-hmm. the you know the hot mm-hmm. meal, um, that breakfast evolved in a particular meal of its own. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, like you mentioned, people did tend to eat leftovers for breakfast. There weren't specific foods that people ate only at breakfast in the colonial era and the pre-industrial era. Um, in the late 17 and mid-1800s, people were basically eating dinner for breakfast. By then, they were having uh, meats for breakfast, uh, sometimes multiple meats, fish, um, all sorts of, you know, starches as well. Um, but it was with the industrial uh, revolution and the sort of the the major changes that took place in society, the urbanization of society as well, that um, people were suffering a national case of indigestion mm-hmm. because they were eating a farmer's diet, but they were you know living a more modern, urban, and a little bit more sedentary lifestyle. And um, the health reformers of this age looked to breakfast as you know a cure for that, and they experimented with what they called Graham flour, which was basically whole wheat flour named after Sylvester Graham, who advocated um, uh, uh, homemade bread with a bran in it. And uh, their experiments resulted in the invention of breakfast cereal. So breakfast cereal, uh, thanks not only to the work of health reformers, but to the work of entrepreneurs, um, such as um, Will Keith, uh, William Keith Kellogg, mm-hmm. um, who was also the first person really to add sugar to breakfast cereals, <laughs> to the consternation of his brother, um, uh, Harvey Kellogg, who was really the inventor of, um, of uh, cornflakes. Um, and uh, so breakfast cereal and other similar farinaceous foods, grain-based foods, become very important uh, to breakfast, but so does milk, so does orange juice, so does toast. Um, milk and orange juice, the story there really has to do with the discovery of vitamins um, in the 1910s. And, 
you know, they discovered that if you drank milk, it didn't really matter how poor your diet was, you weren't going to get the deficiency diseases that, um, you know, might be associated with um, with a poor diet. And so it was hailed as a miracle food. And uh, people didn't know how much you needed to drink to get the, the vitamin A, which it was eventually isolated as, uh, from it. And so they just drank large quantities, and it worked well that it softened the... Um, uh, you know, breakfast cereal that was uh, originally quite hard. Um, and that was a, a, a sort of modern commercialized version of cornmeal mush, which was cornmeal and, and milk, or maybe <laughs> milk and molasses. So everything yeah. went back around again. <laughs> they were back yeah. at the beginning. <laughs> well, yeah. if any one meal probably needs work on it today, I, I would say that it's probably breakfast, that you know, people mm. need to slow down and take more time to, to mm. eat that first meal in the day. Well, it, it accommodates our, our working lifestyle. You Exa- know, well, I, as, you know, another image that you, you know, portrayed so well is, that, is our, you know, our, our quick grab a bite for lunch kind of, you know, mm-hmm. being a, such a, uh, an industrious society, you know, work, work, work. And, and um, in fact, there was just an article the other day, uh, I think in the paper, those who eat at their desk and take only 20 minutes for lunch are more productive than those who actually take the time for an hour and go out and have lunch with friends. <laughs> and it's like, like telling people, yeah, telling people they should sit at your desk and don't eat much. And But, the, you know, the, yeah, the grabbing the sandwich, the automat, that was, I was thinking of the, you know, in, mm-hmm. you know, the image of the automat, people, you know, grabbing something out of a, you know, pre-made uh, meal out of a, a machine. But, yeah, it's, it definitely, that definitely is because of work patterns, right? I would definitely agree with you, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Breakfast and lunch, um, more so than dinner, uh, but dinner to a certain extent, really reflects our prioritizing of work and also the influence of business culture. As food becomes commercialized, um, commercial foods colonize those meals, and I think they colonize breakfast more than any meal, Um, but... um, you know, you just you have foods that are 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 designed to um, be eaten, eaten quickly. They don't require cooking. They don't require cleanup. They often don't require utensils, and um, and then dinner, of course, accommodates our work by sort of doing the opposite. It becomes this refuge from um, from work and from the commercial world. And I think the the ideal of having a homemade you know meal there um, makes it possible to not care about about breakfast and lunch not being, you know, homemade foods and mm-hmm. especially breakfast. Well, and of course, you, you mentioned restaurants. The restaurant culture um, plays really big into the whole family meal thing, too. I mean, people take so many meals out. Well, the, the business meal, you know, that mm-hmm. so dinners, family dinners might have been replaced by, you know, taking the client out to dinner at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. The, I mean, it's still a meal that didn't exist centuries ago in terms of sitting, you know, with plate, fork, knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, if you had a knife, you were lucky, right, <laughs> in the <laughs> old days. <laughs> but now we have, you know, all the implements and all the tools. We just need the time to sit down and have a nice dinner. with our, It doesn't have to be homemade. You can get it ordered in, but sit down and set the table and have a nice meal with your family. I think that that is um, – I think it's a wonderful practice that started – in um, particularly in America, and uh, I, for one, is I would like to see it continue. And, mm. <laughs> and I thank you so much for writing all this information in the book. It um, it it was really something I hadn't thought about that meals weren't as we know it today. And um, again, the book is Three Squares: 
The Invention of the American Meal by Abigail Carroll. Abigail, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And this has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.